Did you? Think again. We are traveling back into the deepest, darkest parts of the canyon. This will conclude the three-part segment on the Laurel Canyon. Unless, of course, I stumble across some more must-share information. But, in this episode, I bring the cosmic fire... Once more, to reveal the secrets hidden in plain sight. Coming from the hippie movement and the music of the 1960s. So, if you love what I do, leave a five-star review. Which, by the way, I have a few new ones. And um, you guys are absolutely Fantastic. I just can't thank you enough. It's taken me a while to get to record this intro, but nonetheless, here we are. I got a new one from Kiki LaRue entitled A Very Cool Chica, five stars. And it says, Love her forthright approach, and the Marilyn Monroe episode was perfection. Can't wait for more from this natural. Recontour. Girl, you tested me on that one. I like that though. I am a reconnoisseur and I hope to keep you entertained. Thank you so much for the review. It took me forever to put that Marilyn Monroe episode together, and I almost pulled every single one of my hairs out in the process. <laughs> but it's all for the podcast. And it's all for the listeners. So, next review is from Gloomslayer1881, entitled One 
of my new favorite podcast, Five Stars. And it says, Julia is a natural. Love all the subjects she talks about. And she goes down another tangent to keep it interesting for me. Thank you so much. I love my tangents, but I feel like you all appreciate them. And that's no different with the episode coming up right now. A lot of tangents and a lot of absolutely mind-blowing information. So thank you so much for listening. Don't be shy. Hit that five star for me. And let's roll right into the episode. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! We are back. We are back to talk about the Laurel Canyon. Y'all thought I was done? Oh my God. Hell to the no, we're not done. My most popular episode to date is the Occult Laurel Canyon Part 1, followed by Occult Laurel Canyon Part 2. And, uh, There are some more interesting tidbits that we need to discuss in order to sum up the Occult Laurel Canyon. So, ding ding, we are back for round motherfucking three. So, hang on to your hats, folks. This is going to be a bumpy ride. Let's start at the conception of Laurel Canyon, and then I'm going to walk you through some other interesting information. Until around 1913, Laurel Canyon remained an undeveloped piece of LA, a pristine wilderness, until this poophead, Charles Spencer Mann, and his partners began buying up land along what would become Laurel Canyon Boulevard, as well as up Lookout Mountain. In 1913, Charles Spencer Mann began operating the nation's first trackless trolley to ferry tourists and prospective buyers from Sunset Boulevard up to what would become the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue. Around that same time, he built a massive tavern on that very same corner dubbed the Laurel Tavern. The Laurel Tavern, of course, would later be affectionately known as the Log Cabin. And I 
don't want to have to repeat myself a bunch of times, but I hope you know by now who owned and operated the log cabin in the Laurel Canyon heydays. Frank Zappa. Now, this is how the story begins. But I forgot to mention another facility in the Laurel Canyon that was built before the heydays. And it's what would become known as Lookout Mountain Laboratory. And it was originally envisioned as an air defense center, built in 1941 and nestled in two and a half secluded acres off of what is now Wonderland Park Avenue. The installation was hidden from view and surrounded by an electrified fence. By 1947, the facility featured a fully operational movie studio. In fact, it is claimed that it was perhaps the world's only completely self-contained movie studio with 100,000 square feet of floor space. The covert studio included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing facilities, an animation department, and 17 climate-controlled film vaults. It also had underground parking, a helicopter pad, and a bomb shelter. So, I know what you guys are going to say. Julia, did you look to see what movies were made there? Well, I fucking tried, but as it turns out, Over its lifetime, the studio produced some 19,000 classified motion pictures. More than all the Hollywood studios combined, which I guess makes Laurel Canyon the real motion picture capital of the world. Now, get this shit. Officially, the facility was run by the U.S. Air Force, and did nothing more nefarious than process AEC footage of atomic and nuclear bomb tests. My ass. The studio was clearly equipped to do far fucking more than just process film. There are indications that Lookout Mountain Laboratory had an advanced research and development department that was on the cutting edge of new film technologies. Such technological advances as 3D effects were apparently first developed at the Laurel Canyon site. Hollywood luminaries like John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, Howard Hawks, Ronald Reagan, Bing Crosby, Walt motherfucking Disney and Marilyn Monfucking Rowe were given clearance to work at the facility on undisclosed projects. There is no indication that any of them ever spoke of their work at the clandestine studio. I think they had access to CGI. I think they were, like I said, doing shit that we are just now getting to see. It makes me think of Stanley Kubrick faking the moon landing. He probably had access to this 
facility. He probably was given access to this 3D effects and all of that. That's why when I tell you he was involved in projects like this, you have to believe that this shit was really going on. Black Magic Movie Studios. Now, the facility retained as many as 250 producers, directors, technicians, editors, animators, both civilian and military, all with top security clearances and all reporting to work in a secluded corner of Laurel Canyon. Accounts vary as to when the facility ceased operations, even if it ever did. Some claim it was in 1969, while others say the installation remained in operation longer. Probably still in operation, if you want my opinion. In any event, by all accounts, the secret bunker had been up and running for more than 20 years before Laurel Canyon's rebellious teen years, and it remained operational for the most turbulent of those years, and probably still today. Now, the existence of the facility remained unknown to the general public until the early 1990s. Though it had long been rumored that the CIA operated a secret movie studio somewhere in or near Hollywood, it wasn't confirmed until the early 1990s. This is some black magic movie shit. Same shit I'm always telling you about. So, filmmaker Peter Curran was the first to learn of its existence. Through classified documents he obtained while researching his 1995 documentary, Trinity and Beyond. And yet, even today, 22, 23 years later, after its public disclosure, people still have trouble finding even a single mention of this secret military intelligence facility where... 19,000 motion pictures were made, other than, like, conspiracy theories. But it exists. This is what they were doing. All the, like, all the atomic bomb footage and all that, probably, they're faked. They're probably fucking faked videos coming from these poop heads in the fucking Laurel Canyon. But if we're talking movies... Try this on for size. In Occult Laurel Canyon Part 1, we talked about Vito Polikis and what happened to his baby son. Now, I was looking back into that situation to include some more information in this episode, and it's obviously going to tangent me into some more information I found, but let's start with this. There was this book called Hippie, written by Barry Miles. And in this book, he says, quote, the first hippies in Hollywood, perhaps the first hippies anywhere, were Vito Polikas, his wife Sue, Captain Fuck, and their group of about 35 dancers, calling themselves freaks. They lived in a semi-communal life and engaged in sex orgies and free-form dancing whenever they could, end quote. Now, you guys remember Vito, right? 
if you don't, I'll include some more information as we go along, but obviously he's cousin-in-laws with the Rockefellers. This is all a setup, controlled opposition, the whole nine. Uh, Vito Polycus was a sick fucking freak vampire, just like the rest of them. Now, let's proceed. Arthur Lee boasted that they, quote, started the whole hippie thing. Vito, Carl, Sue, Beetle Bob, Brian, and Arthur Lee, end quote, started the whole hippie thing. And by all accounts, this freak troop was led by Vito Polycus. And here's a little recap. Vito Polycus' full name is said to have been Vitatus Alphonsus Polycus, born the son of a Lithuanian sausage maker circa 1912 and hailed from Lowell, Massachusetts. God only knows if that's true. But is also, as I just said, cousin-in-laws with the Rockefellers via Vito's cousin, Barbara Paul Spears. But now, I want to introduce you to his sidekick, who was a man named Carl Franzoni. And Carl Franzoni has claimed in interviews that his mother was a countess. And his father, get this shit, was a stone carver from Rutland, Vermont. And that the family was brought from Italy, from the quarries in the northern part of Italy, to cut the stone for the monuments of the United States, end quote. That would make his father, and I'm just guessing here, someone of some kind of importance in the Mason community, right? He was a stone carver from Italy, brought here to cut the stone for the monuments of the United States and fell into a group led by Vito Polycus, cousin-in-laws with the Rockefellers. Come on, people. You think they just met one day at a bar and put all this together? I don't think so. So by at least as early as 1962, the freak troupe was already hitting clubs several nights a week to refine their unique style of dance and look for recruits to join the movement. And recruits for Vito and Carl's dance troupe weren't likely hard to come by given that Vito operated the first crash pad in LA. That's crash pad, whatever that's supposed to mean. To me, that means um, a commune, right? It was just an open house to countless runaways, a place where anyone was welcome for a night, particularly young women. And do you remember what happened to Vito Polycus' baby son? We talked about it in Occult Laurel Canyon Part 1. He died mysteriously. And now why I bring that up is one of these recruits, these freak dancers of Vito Polycus, also known as a super groupie, a hoe looking for some blow, whatever. Her name was Pamela DeBars. And she says, quote, Vito's exquisite little puppet child, Godo, fell through a skylight during a wacky photo session on the roof and died at age three and a half. 
end quote. Now we have a man named Albin Fitzderer from the band Love, who recalled a much darker scenario. Quote, Vito got married, had a baby, gave it acid, and it fell off the roof and died, end quote. Red flags already. I already told you there was a history with this child and Vito Paulikas, these vampires, they love the pedophilia. So this little boy, Goto Paulikas, was also featured in a Laurel Canyon movie called Mondo Hollywood by Robert Carl Cohen, probably made at the Black Magic Movie Studio, the Lookout Mountain Laboratory. and. There was a re-release of this Mondo Hollywood movie and Robert Carl Cohen added postscripts for all the famous people who were featured in his film. And for Godo Polikas, he inserted a caption that said, died at age two, victim of medical malpractice. Does this ring any bells? It's super similar to what they said about Heather O'Rourke. Undiagnosed bowel obstruction, Crohn's, medical malpractice let no that's not what happened i'm really thinking about doing an episode on steven spielberg Corey haim Corey feldman and uh, all this other stuff and of course heather o'rourke would be mentioned in that episode but that's for another time but it's very similar they die mysteriously suspiciously and they say medical malpractice now we also know that a musician named Raphael told uh, this writer, Michael Walker, that uh, before Godot's death, Raphael had been present one evening at Vito's house when Godot was brought out. And he said this, quote, they passed that little boy around naked in a circle with their mouths. That was their thing about introducing him to sexuality, end quote. I feel like that speaks for itself, but there are some other points that need to be mentioned. Get this shit. Kenneth Anger's first candidate to play Lucifer in one of his films was this little boy. And he doesn't come out and say the name of this little boy, but this is a quote from Kenneth Anger. A five-year-old boy whose hippie parents had been fixtures on the Los Angeles counterculture scene fell through a skylight to his death, end quote. This is Godo Polikas. And by 1967, Kenneth Anger had relocated to San Francisco and was searching for a new Lucifer. And he found it in the form of Bobby Cupid Beausoleil of the fucking Manson family. And so it was that the soon-to-be-convicted fucking murderer replaced the little hippie child as the face of Lucifer. But what was it that drew Kenneth Anger's twisted fucking eye to Godo Polikas? How close a relationship did Kenneth Anger have with Vito Polikas and Carl Franzoni? And more importantly, how did Godo Polikas really fucking die? Maybe we'll never know for sure, but here are some of the factors that come into play while we're talking about this and may lead to a solution. 
Point number one being that the little boy was reportedly subjected to pedophilic treatment by his parents and others. Number two, the boy's parents displayed a truly chilling indifference to the child's death, being that they went out fucking dancing right after he died. Three, Kenneth Anger had expressed an interest in filming the boy. Four, Pamela DeBars contends that the toddler died during a wacky photo session. Wacky for you and me would be a whole different situation than wacky for these people, okay? I'm sensing this has something to do with, like, snuff film type of stuff. So, number five, Albin Fitzderer had claimed that the child was drugged. Six, Bobby Beausoleil has said that some of Kenneth Anger's film projects were for private collectors. Here's a quote. Every once in a while, he'd do a little thing that wouldn't be for distribution. Hmm. Then, we have a biographer, Bill Landis, who said Kenneth Anger was at one time investigated by the police on suspicion that he had been producing snuff flicks. Probably out of the Lookout Mountain Laboratory, let's be real. And we also have the fact that Beto Polygus believed in introducing children to sexuality at a very young age and often said that infant sexuality was encouraged and now some more information regarding godopolygus death some of the most interesting stuff i found concerning the death is that godopolygus was born on december 1st 1963 and died on december 23rd 1966 having just made it past his third birthday December 23rd was, curiously enough, the winter solstice. And it wasn't just any winter solstice. Specifically, this was the first winter solstice in the age of Satan. And how do we know that? Well, it was declared by Kenneth Anger's buddy, Anton LaVey, on April 30th, 1966. The date of this little boy's death also means that he died less than 48 hours before Christmas morning, and yet his parents still thought it was a good time to go out dancing. Now, I'm looking into this whole pedophilia thing with um, Kenneth Anger, the snuff films, Lookout Mountain Laboratory, movies being made, this little boy being in a movie, the All the Black Magic Pedophilia, SRA, of course, we have it all. But it also appears that top law enforcement officials in the nation were also a part of the Laurel Canyon scene in the late 1960s and early 70s, along with various other unnamed persons of prominence. And we also find, not too shockingly, that Laurel Canyon was a portal of child pornography. 
So Frank Zappa's daughter, Moon Zappa, says, quote, I recall men with straggly beards, body odor, and bad posture who crouched naked near my playthings, end quote. And then also we have the information that the Zappa children watched porn with their parents and were encouraged in their own sexuality as soon as they reached puberty. And when they became teenagers, their mother, Gail, insisted they shower with their overnight guests in order to conserve water. Because, you know, apparently the Zappas were having a hard time paying their water bill. My fucking ass, you guys. This is what we would call grooming. Showering. Naked guys everywhere with fucking B.O. Watching porn with their mom and dad. Oh my god. This is so disturbing. I can't imagine having lived through this shit. But I'm going through this research on this pedophilia thing. And it kind of tangents me because the Zappas were all connected with the military stuff. I don't want to repeat myself. You can go back and listen to the Occult Laurel Canyon Part 1 again. But I find some more military connections. And it brings up a new character in our story. So... Let's turn our attention next to Mr. Peter Fonda. Actually, more importantly, his father. Of course, we all know that Peter Fonda is the son of good old Hank or Henry Fonda. And Henry Fonda has some fucking skeletons in his closet. So, Hank served as a decorated U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer during World War II. Not too many years after the war, Hank's wife, Frances Ford Seymour, was found with her throat slashed open with a straight razor. And Peter Fonda was just 10 years old at the time of the suicide on April 14, 19. 50. Now, there is some interesting information about Frances Ford Seymour as well. When she met and married Hank, she was the widow of this guy named George Brokaw, who had previously been married to a prominent CIA asset, Claire Booth Luce. And then he goes on to marry another lady for just a year after the suicide of Francis Ford Seymour, but that, again, only lasted a year. And then in 1957, he married yet again, this time to an Italian countess, Aferda Franchetti, who, by the way, after her four-year marriage to Henry Fonda, started an affair with the newly sworn-in fucking President John F. Kennedy. And Franchetti, as it turns out, is the daughter of Baron Raimondo Franchetti, who was a consultant to the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. And this Countess Franchetti is also the great-granddaughter of Luis Sarah Rothschild, 
of the ever-popular Rothschild banking family. (laughs) You've heard of them, right? But, so listen. Hank's first wife, Margaret Sullivan, also allegedly committed suicide on New Year's Day, 1960, and then nine months later, her daughter, Bridget, followed suit. And then in 1961, after the death of Margaret Sullivan and her daughter, Bridget, her other daughter, Brooke Hayward, walked down the aisle with the next poop head on our list, Dennis Hopper. So we have the fucking Fondas and the Hoppers. You guys... It just never ends. So, the next poop head, Dennis Hopper. Most official biographies of Hopper would lead one to believe that he was a son of a simple farmer. But Dennis Hopper's father was not a fucking farmer. To the contrary, Hopper's dad was a working person in intelligence who, during World War II, was in the OSS Precursor to the CI fucking A. And who else? Jackson Brown. OSS. Okay. Now, after the war, the Hopper family left the quote unquote farm in Kansas and relocated to San Diego, California, home of the Imperial Beach Naval Air Station, the United States Naval Radio Station, the United States Naval Amphibious Base, the North Island Naval Air Station, Fort Rosecrans Military Reservation, the United States Naval Training Center, the United States Marine Corps Recruit Depot, the Miramar Marine Corps Air Station, and just north of the city sits the massive Camp Pendleton Marine Corps Base. Other than that, though, San Diego is just a sleepy little town where the Hoppers moved to and the dad worked for the post office. My fucking shitty ass. Now, the modern version of Dennis Hopper, by the way, is wildly at odds with the hippie image that he, at one time, tried very hard to cultivate. Today, Dennis Hopper is an unapologetic cheerleader for Team Skull and Bones. Fucking Bush. And you know what else I found in connection to the military? Sharon Tate was the daughter of Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tate, a career U.S. Army intelligence officer. So, tell me there's not some fucking shit going on with that. But let's push on. I'm looking into the origin story of Laurel Canyon, that fucking Lookout Mountain Laboratory, then it leads me to that movie Godo Palikas was in. He dies. Weird stuff going on there. Military connections, as usual. But then I stumble across this other piece of research. And we're going to go ahead 
and dive into the late summer of 1969. So following the murder of Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, who I mentioned in my Tales from the Crypt episode, it was a deathbed confession. That motherfucker not only was part of the 27 Club, but he was murdered, okay? So following his murder in July... The Stones were back in L.A. to complete their Let It Bleed album and prepare for yet another tour. Mick and Keith stayed at Stephen Stills' house near Laurel Canyon. And on December 6, 1969, temporary Laurel Canyon residents Mick and Keith, along with permanent Laurel Canyon residents Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, all gathered at a desolate speedway known as Altamont to stage a free concert. By the time it was over, four people were dead, and another 850 concertgoers were injured to varying degrees, mostly by members of the Hell's Angels. Perhaps less well-known was that more than a few of those biker gangs had uncomfortably close ties to Charlie Manson, particularly a club known as the Straight Satans. One of whose members, Danny DiCarlo, watched over the family's arsenal of weapons. If you guys don't think that they knew all about what was going on with the Manson family, you'd be wrong. Okay? So, this man named Meredith Hunter, who was attending the free concert, was stabbed to death by members of the Hells Angels right in front of the stage while the band, the Rolling Stones, played. And the song they were playing, contrary to most accounts of the incident, was Sympathy for the Devil. Most accounts claim that Hunter was killed while the band performed Under My Thumb. These claims are based on the mainstream film Gimme Shelter, in which the killing was deliberately presented out of sequence. In the absence of any alternative video evidence of Hunter's death, Gimme Shelter became the default official version. Now, of course, someone went to great lengths to ensure that there would be only one available version of the events. And Rolling Stone magazine also reported shortly after the concert, quote, one weird Altmont story has to do with a young Berkeley filmmaker who claims to have gotten eight millimeter footage of the killing. He got home from the affair Saturday and began telling his friends about the amazing film. His house was knocked over the next night, completely rifled, and the thief took only his film and nothing else, end quote. They are notorious for doing that shit. 
oh, I got this film of this guy being stabbed to death at this Rolling Stones concert, telling all of his friends about it. Next night, house is broken into, everything's went through, everything's rifled through, and they take nothing but the footage. So the only official version we have is what they've concocted, probably at Lookout Mountain Laboratory, let's be real, called Gimme Shelter, deliberately presenting the footage out of sequence. This man was murdered during the song Sympathy for the Devil, point blank, period. And contrary to the impression created by Gimme Shelter, Hunter was killed not long into the Stones set. Many of the accounts of the tragedy at Altmont Park include the demonstrably false claim that Hunter can unmistakably be seen drawing a gun just before being jumped and killed by the angels. But there was no gun present, people. The angel who was charged with the murder and then ultimately acquitted Alan David Passaro was found flown face down in a reservoir in March of 1985 with $10,000 in his pocket. Despite a widespread belief that Pizarro's acquittal was based on the jury having been convinced that Hunter had drawn a gun, but rather on the fact that the knife wounds that killed Hunter were apparently upstrokes which meant that they were not the wounds inflicted on camera by Passaro. He and or someone else continued to stab Hunter after he was down. And it was these wounds, which the camera clearly didn't record, that killed him. And that motherfucker, David, I'm sorry, Alan David Passaro was found floating face down in a reservoir with $10,000 in his pocket. Now, I have done another episode on the smiley face killers. I told y'all those were occult fucking murders. And now we have Alan David Passaro with 10000 bucks in his pocket floating face down in a reservoir. Just like what other murders were occulted shit. The West Memphis Three murders were occult as shit, and they were found floating in a river. You guys need to check out that episode I did on the Smiley Face murders with William Ramsey, and you also need to check out the West Memphis Three episode I did with these drowning deaths. Occult as shit. This is another thing that they do, people. And you know... Damien Eccles of the West Memphis Three Murders is friends with who? Johnny Depp and Marilyn Manson. Come on. All right, all right, all right. Let's continue. About a year after this incident occurred, the otherwise obscure singer-songwriter Don McLean wrote the lyrics to the iconic song, American Pie. This song is infamous. 
I used to sing this song all the time. Okay, all the time. And it's so upbeat, which is another thing they like to do to us is make songs with cryptid lyrics super upbeat so you almost don't catch what it's talking about. And those lyrics are essentially a chronological recitation of various tragedies that shaped the world of popular music. Let's dive into the song, shall we? So not long after a reference to the August, here we go, August, one of their favorite fucking months to do shit in, not long after a reference to the August 1969 Manson murders and their connection to the Laurel Canyon music scene. This will be the day that I die. Helter Skelter in a summer swelter, the birds flew off with a fallout shelter, eight miles high and falling fast. Okay. And just before a reference to the October 1970 death of Janis Joplin. I met a girl who sang the blues And I asked her for some happy news But she just smiled and turned away I went down to the sacred store Where I'd heard the music years before But the men there said the music wouldn't play. So, not long after the reference of the Manson murders, and just before the reference to Janis Joplin, can be found a verse in which McLean characterizes the death of Meredith Hunter as a ritualized murder. Oh, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw. In case you didn't catch that. And as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. And this also goes to prove that the only footage we have, which purposely takes things out of order, Gimme Shelter, 
This man did not die during Under My Thumb. He died during Sympathy for the Devil, which is why this song is written that way. And which is why you guys, I I am constantly like lining shit out for you and showing you examples. And then I still get people say they're not sure or they don't think this stuff is real or I'm looking too far into things. It's in the fucking song, people. I didn't write it. This poophead wrote it. And it's clearly talking about satanic ritual abuse, satanic sacrifice. During the song, Sympathy for the Devil. It's all of their favorite shit. And speaking of Janis Joplin, ask and you shall receive. The 27 Club. So I had one of the listeners, I won't say their name for privacy purposes. She reached out to me, gave me an excellent uh, review, and she said she couldn't leave it on the app. So she just was going to message me on Instagram and she complimented the show. And I was uh, very grateful for that. And she mentioned the 27 Club, and she also said how much she loved the Occult Laurel Canyon episode. And so this one's for you. I promised you I'd bring it up, and now here we go. The 27 Club. What is it? The 27 Club includes musicians, artists, actors, and other celebrities who died at the age of 27 often as a result of drug and alcohol abuse or violent means such as homicide, suicide, or transportation-related accidents, but more likely ritual sacrifices. A couple of the members include Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, all died at age 27 between 1969 and Canyon contributions. That's what I call these people. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones were all Laurel Canyon contributions. Who else? Well, we do have, of course, Kurt Cobain in 1994. And in 2011, 17 years after Kurt Cobain's death, Amy Winehouse died at age 27. Then we have Alan Blindow Wilson, guitarist for Canned Heat, also a Laurel Canyon contribution. Then we have Peter Ham of Badfinger. Kristen Paff, a member of Courtney Love's band Hole and Randy. But as I mentioned in my Wizard of Oz episode, blues musician Robert Johnson, who died in 1938, is the earliest known musician to be included in the list of names on the 27 Club. And Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil, which resulted in his death at age 27, along with probably most all of these other characters. This is demonic satanic there's a rhyme and a reason to why these people turned up dead at age 27 
So I know a lot of you are thinking the same thing. I'm thinking, yes, these deaths are suspicious. Yes, they all died at 27. But there's been so many other deaths near the age of 27. People who died at the age 28 would have been Heath Ledger, Abici, Brandon Lee, the big bopper who died in the plane crash with Buddy Holly, and Bradley Noel from Sublime. Well, who died at 26? Mac Miller, Sharon Tate, Otis Redding, John Wilkes Booth, Graham Parsons, Laurel Canyon, Princess Cecile of Greece and Denmark, also mentioned in Occult Laurel Canyon Part 2, part of the royal family, died in a plane crash, and was of occult significance. These plane crash deaths are also of occult significance. And then... You know, also in their 20s would have been Selena, Bobby Fuller, Oral Canyon, and River Phoenix. There were some people who also died in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, obviously, like uh, Whitney Houston, um, John Denver, and some other people, Chris Cornell, and yes, they were also, they also died of occult significance to me, and they were obviously either staged suicides or weird deaths like that. So what is going on with the 27 Club or dying around the age of 27? Obviously, we have like Heath Ledger, like I said, at 28, Mac Miller at 26, and we have the 27 Club itself. And then like Selena, Bobby Fuller, River Phoenix dying at age 23. And sometimes I do my best thinking when I'm just talking out loud to you guys. So I have like a couple of different thoughts and feelings and opinions. A lot of people are off like Anne Heesh and Anthony Bourdain um, because they're working on something, Chris Cornell, about exposing pedophilia. I think Paul Walker was actually working on something as well. And of course, they're going to get off. They're going to get killed. They're going to get murdered. But the drug abuse, like Janis Joplin and Heath Ledger, Mac Miller, they died, River Phoenix, of drug-related deaths. And then we have, like, weird murder type of deaths. And I don't know, what what do you... So, I always, I always say that they take us off track of looking at the bigger picture. They are wanting us to focus on this age of 27. Um, they've There's thousands of references to the 27 Club, even in songs and shit, movies. So they're getting us to focus on the 27. But is that so they can take us off of looking at other occulted deaths that weren't at the age of 27. So let's say I am a vampire, elite poophead motherfucker, and I'm offing people who are doing things that I don't want them to do. Or I'm offing people who have made deals with the devil. So like Brittany Murphy, whomever, and I'm trying to cover my track. If the majority of them were 27, then I could say, oh, there's this 27 club. You guys should get obsessed with looking into this. 
um, it's weird. There's the conspiracy theory, the 27 Club, all these people. And in the meantime, I can knock off hundreds of other people who didn't die at the age of 27. And you're like, oh, well, that must not be an occult death because they didn't die at the age of 27. Do you see what I'm getting at? They did die with occult significance. Just because they didn't die at 27 doesn't mean that they that they weren't killed on purpose for a reason. I mean, like Brandon Lee, Avicii, obviously Sharon Tate, John Wilkes Booth. These are people of huge importance and significance. So just because they didn't die at 27 like I keep saying, doesn't mean that there wasn't something else going on. So I feel like they invented this whole story around the 27 Club to divert you from looking into deaths that are highly suspicious where they didn't die at 27. We don't know, or at least I don't, because I've never met anyone at the crossroads of anything to sell anything, especially not my eternal soul. So I don't know how those contracts work. Who says that there aren't different ages? Some people sign up for the 27 Club. Maybe they're like, okay, well, if you sign up for the 27 Club, these are the benefits of and the the things that we offer, the amenities that come with this contract, but there's also a 28 club, a 26 club, a 23 club, 33 club. I mean, come on, you guys, like, you're going to sit here and try to tell me that Kobe Bryant's death wasn't a cult of shit. He wasn't 27. You're going to sit here and try to tell me that Aaliyah's death wasn't a cult of shit. She wasn't 27. Tupac. So, that's why I tell you, maybe we should get off this whole 27 Club thing because I think it's set up as kind of like a decoy. So you watch the right hand while the left hand does this. It's not a club of 27-year-olds. It's a mass sacrifice of talented people who were like initiates into a much larger scenario. Fame, fortune, riches, infamy in exchange for what? Your soul. And um, you die in a weird, horrific way is essentially the terms of agreement. Doesn't necessarily have to be 27. Because these people who are selling their souls and get involved in this lifestyle typically are either brought to ruin or die. So we could come up with a new name for it. It's a, a holocaust of sorts. Um, I'd like to call it the Purge Club. How about that? No longer the 27 Club. This is a PSYOP. I'm going with the Purge Party. The Purge Club. Whatever you want to call it. So in future episodes, I reference the Purge Club. It's going to mean people who died with occult significance at an early age or before their time. For instance, that would be like Paul Walker, Chris Cornell, Tupac. 
um, you know, th- these people died before their time, and a lot of them were working on like projects and stuff. Their deaths were super suspicious, and that is for a reason. Obviously, Buddy Holly wasn't 27, and we know he was part of a sacrifice for who? Tuesday Weld. And if you want any better example, just take like this. How did we go from this kind of music? Instantaneously, this kind of music. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. It's almost like we jumped a timeline where there wasn't a slow fizzling out of the doo-wop into hippie shit. It was like overnight, sudden drastic change. We were hopping and bopping and then rocking around the clock to... If you can't be with the one you want, be be with the one you're with, do what you want to do, fuck, have sex, do drugs, hippie lifestyle. And that is on purpose. That's Tavistock. That's structured for a reason. So are these people's deaths. Um, it's they're they're almost like just fuel for the fire there cogs in a much larger machine they're expendable they're a dime a dozen they can make a thousand amy winehouses they can make a thousand janis joplins um and it's not to say that they weren't absolutely incredible and super talented but to them it's like we choose who gets infamy we choose who we let get big I've met a lot of people who are no fucking buddies who could have been just as big as some of these other people, but they are, they are never going to be in the spotlight because they haven't paid the fiddler. This could be the fiddler's club, if you want me to be honest, because they've paid the price, right? They've signed their name in blood. But I hope in conclusion... You've learned some more information on the Laurel Canyon, and you've put some more pieces together of the puzzle. I hope you enjoyed 
our little chat together. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. And I think that will conclude our Occult Laurel Canyon segments on the Cosmic Peach podcast. Thank you for listening and keeping it real. I highly appreciate everyone who listens to my podcast. And uh, we will catch you on the next one. Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. I don't care how much money I gotta spend. Got to get back to my baby again. Lonely days are gone. I'm a going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. When she wrote me a letter, said she couldn't live without me no more. Listen, mister, can't you see I got to get back to my baby once or more? Anyway, yeah, give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home. My baby just wrote me a letter. When she wrote me a letter, said she couldn't live without me no more. Listen, mister, can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more?